Hello, hello, and welcome to this MEPRA podcast on stakeholder capitalism and ESG. I'm Neda Shelton, Executive Board Member of MEPRA, and I'm really pleased to be joined by our Chief Communications Officer here at Mabadala, Brian Lott. Neda, it's a pleasure to join you and the rest of the MEPRA colleagues. Looking forward to our discussion today. It's great to have you here, Brian. So in today's podcast, we'll be discussing questions such as what is stakeholder capitalism? How does it relate to ESG? But more importantly, what role do we as communications professionals have in it? So there was actually a recent thought leadership report released by the Page Society, and it goes into this in detail. So we'll be looking into that um, during this podcast. And before we start, Brian, could you tell us a little bit more about Page, your role within Page, um, how it relates to MEPRA, and also how this report came about? Yes. So uh, what is the Page Society? The Page Society is an almost 40-year-old organization made up of uh, the world's leading chief communications officers from the corporate world, the public relations industry agency CEOs, uh, academics and not-for-profit leaders who become members of PAGE. And PAGE really exists to support the function of the chief communications officer and that increasingly complex role that the CCO plays at the heart of today's modern corporation. One of the things that Pages uh, looked at over the last several years are kind of four uh, key areas that are facing the modern CCO, which include uh, what we call ComTech, which is using technology to measure and make more efficient communications, uh, culture, right? The culture of any company, including an agency that uh, is dealing with an incredible amount of uh, change, particularly post-COVID, the corporate brand and everything that that stands for, and societal value, how companies are making a difference through purpose and giving back. And those are all really important elements of uh, what the current CCOs are facing. So that's what Paige is looking at. And I'll talk a little bit more about the stakeholder capitalism report in a sec. Yeah, that's interesting, Brian, because the actual stakeholder capitalism theme came out of the initial CCO as paysetter report. And I believe it was based on conversations with more than 200 international page members. Correct. Page is a global organization. And so what we want to make sure is reflected in the uh, in the feedback from CCOs is that is that global nature of how corporations are dealing with issues all over the world. The CCO as pace setter was really meant to help companies measure where the CCO and their teams are uh, in terms of their evolution. Are they at the center of the corporate discussion around culture and values and brand? Uh, are they uh, able to measure themselves against uh, world-class companies that have really taken positions uh, in terms of their product and their employees? and their uh, social role. And so what that report did was that it, it took a specific look at uh, what we're calling stakeholder capitalism, which is uh, the importance of the corporation to a number of different stakeholders. Those uh, stakeholders can be employees, they can be elected officials or regulators uh, in different countries, they can be obviously customers and partners. And how are they interacting with them, particularly on the communications front? 
So Brian, we hear a lot about ESG nowadays, and many of us are involved in the communication strategies for ESG. So where does ESG actually fit into this wider concept of stakeholder capitalism? It's at the heart and also uh, it's at uh, the heart of some controversy. So if you look at uh, the whole ESG landscape, uh, it is a description of how companies are being measured uh, along the environmental, social, and governance standpoint. So if you look at the far right, particularly in the U.S., uh, you've seen a bit of a backlash against what certain people are calling ESG as woke capitalism, right? Companies trying to do the right thing uh, based on some of the social dynamics within that country. And there's been a bit of a confusion, if you will, over how companies are rated. So particularly in industries like energy, um, are you ESG compliant? Well, who's measuring who is compliant and who isn't? That's been a subject of some controversy. There's no universal standard. And what it's become is sort of shorthand for how companies are either disclosing themselves, what they're doing in different industries in their supply chain. You know, uh, carbon emissions, for example, is, is one area of hot debate. Uh, and then how certain funds are being ranked, whether they're ESG compliant or not. So that's the woke part. And uh, again, in, in certain parts of the West, you have lots of different discussions around uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you've even seen some states in the U.S. that have passed red, uh, legislation to either force companies or ask companies to uh, disclose where they stand on a number of these different measures. On the left, you actually have uh, a large proportion of um, stakeholders who think that ESG is sort of a uh, a whitewashing effort to disclose something, but not really um, everything that they're doing or to accentuate the positive things they're doing without disclosing the negative. Look, to me, ESG is really a, a sort of acronym that has its own place in the discussion, but is no substitute for companies doing the right thing. And what the Page Society has always advocated is uh, to tell the truth, to prove it with action, uh, and really make sure that the CCO is there as the conscience of the company, telling stakeholders uh, what companies are doing uh, in areas that are important. And I think uh, ultimately consumers and partners are going to judge companies based on their reputations of uh, are they doing the right thing and are they engaging in trying to make the world a better place or not. So if we look at stakeholder capitalism as covering three main areas, so it's to do with the purpose of a brand, products and services related to that purpose, it's to do with ESG, as already mentioned, but also corporate social advocacy, which we're seeing a lot, especially in the Western world, in terms of the, the demands of employees and of customers and media on certain companies. So with all of this as a backdrop, Paige has really kind of taken the lead in terms of creating a thought leadership piece on, on all of these issues. So what are they actually saying in that report in terms of the role of us as communication professionals? Well, let's talk about the, the, the value to society that corporations uh, contribute. You know, one is in their products and services, right? So what, what consumers uh, or partners acquire from a company. One is this ESG, how they are um, being measured. And then there's the whole question of societal value. What is a company's role in uh, trying to make the world a better place beyond their products and services, right? 
And that can be um, lots of different ways that companies choose to give back. And it, this um, sort of integration role at the heart of companies, it doesn't fall to HR, typically it doesn't fall to finance or legal. It typically falls to the communications function. And the CCO is really sort of the chief integration officer of pulling together the products and services piece with the ESG measurement and responsible investing piece, and then thinking about how uh, companies and corporations are playing their appropriate responsible role in the context of society. And that's new. I mean, that hasn't really been um, part of the CCO remit until really the last 10 years. Before that, you had a chief product safety officer or you had a chief compliance officer. Um, the COO was almost always the person responding to questions from stakeholders about were companies doing the right thing and how are they being measured. Now it's really, uh, it falls on the chief communications officer. And one of the challenges we have uh, as communicators is it, do we really have the skills and resources? Do we have the depth of teams to assess these things? Uh, are we really in a place within a corporation, depending on who you report to, that is able to pull in those different pieces uh, of the business and communicate them outward? Because sometimes, you know, corporations can be somewhat political and getting that information and getting people to all understand why that's so important to a company's reputation isn't easy. And then of course it's resource intensive. So what's the ROI? right? It's like measuring reputation. It's something that the industry still struggles with. Everyone knows that you want to partner with a company that has a great reputation and that reputation is an intangible asset and it's a huge asset, but maintaining that and, and how much does that cost as a cost center in a corporation is not always easy to measure. So CCOs need to be strong leaders. They need to understand the global dynamic. They need to be able to uh, communicate that in a digital first environment uh, these days and to really understand from a listening standpoint what stakeholders are expecting of a company and its leadership. And that's a new set of skills that, that Paige is really focusing on to help CCOs step up, marshal the resources and do as good a job as they can in an ever dynamic world. And that's a really interesting point that there's still a lot to learn around this area. So how does that impact selling this into the CEO of a company? So if a communications professional is really looking to advocate stakeholder capitalism and take on board all of this advice, how do they sell it in? What are the benefits for the company? I think it's a, it's a benefit, but it's also a risk of not doing it. I mean, just pick up uh, a daily newspaper these days and you can see uh, embattled CEOs who decided to ignore probably the advice of their communications team, uh, either in uh, what they've communicated or what they should have communicated. And, you know, the, the CEO, particularly one that reports to a board that is measuring performance, uh, is wise to have the chief communications officer as a kind of truth teller at their side to make sure that they're not saying something that is coming over the, you know, is, is deliberately uh, misleading for sure, but that it even can be misinterpreted by certain stakeholder groups. And I think that for, for the wise and skilled CEO, he or she is looking to their communicator to, to help them navigate what's becoming uh, an increasingly complicated world for two reasons. One is the speed of information. 
So uh, it's nothing uh, new to anybody who's listening to this podcast that a tweet can put a company on its heels very quickly uh, in terms of how they're seen and how the company needs to respond uh, to a certain issue. And then just the complexity, right? This is no longer for most companies, a geographic location. It's a, it's a global context in which they're operating. We're uh, entering into a more globalized world, a more dynamic sense of what that means in terms of uh, where customers are based, uh, what geographies go through in terms of political dynamics and change. So CEOs today are in a very different environment and they need as much support and talent in the, in the CCO role as possible. And transparency really is the key word here. I think, you know, companies are under so much scrutiny, not just from the media, but also from talent, you know, in terms of attracting talent, retaining talent, and from their customers and their partners, especially when they're operating in an international context. So when we looked at, for example, some international case studies of companies that are really embracing stakeholder capitalism, uh, Roger Bolton president of PAGE was here in Abu Dhabi a few weeks ago, gave a presentation on some of the, these international insights that he observed. Can you think of perhaps some more regional examples of where stakeholder capitalism is starting to emerge and stand out as a best practice? Yeah, if you look at companies that have been um, very active in communicating, you know, industries that uh, for a long time are part and parcel of the UAE, for example, uh, Maginal Fatame comes to mind, DP World comes to mind, uh, even our subsidiary, Full Disclosure, uh, and Mazdar, given the whole COP27 uh, hosts uh, in, uh, in the region in Egypt. You know, they've all gone through a, a kind of modern uh, update through their own CCOs around how they communicate to their stakeholders. And it is, whether it's on the consumer and retail side for, for Maginal Fatame, and more transparency around uh, Alain Bajani, who's their CEO, about what the company stands for, or DP World and, and Danny von Otterdijk, who's the CCO, uh, supporting that organization, just kind of demystifying what they do uh, as DP World, which, you know, is, it, if we go back 15 years, was really at the heart of a deep misunderstanding between the UAE and the US in particular over the role of a ports company and who owned what. Uh, and I think they've done in their own ways, great jobs at explaining their business model, explaining who their partners and customers are, and just uh, being more transparent to use your word, Netta, about their operations and why they're important because uh, they're both global companies in many ways. They have global stakeholders and they are looking at a, uh, a business environment that is uh, full of opportunity, uh, but at any time can also be, um, can put them in, in, in a situation where they need to explain themselves. And I think uh, it, as we look at sort of modern communications examples from the region as global leaders, you see them getting more engaged in places like the World Economic Forum and some of these bigger global conferences. So people start to understand their brands, but also what they stand for. And coming out of COVID, you mentioned uh, talent. You know, we, we're seeing this uh, whole theme of or for talent and trying to attract the best people. 
The UAE has done an incredible job of raising its profile as a great place to come and live and work. And I think what particularly the younger generation, those who have graduated from university in the last 10 or 15 years are looking for are companies that actually stand for something, right? That are going to give them career opportunity, but also are looking to do uh, things in the world that are going to help solve the problems of tomorrow. And they want to go home at night knowing that they've spent their day in a company that has a purpose and that really cares about its people, cares about its stakeholders and are, and are trying to do the right thing. So articulating that has not always been a traditional role of, let's call it capitalistic uh, society. Um, and to go from a shareholder only point of view to now a stakeholder lens you know, requires that sensitivity for the executive team uh, and the CCO in particular. It sounds like it is basically the way to go. I mean, it's a win-win for all of the stakeholders. There really doesn't seem to be much of a downside to embracing the strategy. Now, with COP28 coming up next year, a lot of brands out here, a lot of the people listening to this podcast are working on their ESG strategy. They're maybe starting from scratch in some cases. What advice would you give in terms of shaping the ESG and stakeholder capitalism strategy the right way and to avoid greenwashing specifically? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that, that there's no downside. I think um, there's a lot of fear around the transparency question and telling the story. Uh, there's a fear that people may be judged as too far behind, uh, particularly when you look at where we are as a planet facing uh, the climate situation. The expectations are greater than ever on corporations and, you know, there, there's a desire as uh, we look at COP28 for companies to sort of catch up with the demands of employees to solve this overnight. And unfortunately, it's not going to happen overnight. We saw the complexity of the agreement coming out of COP27, uh, the significant differences between the global north and the, the needs, really, the resource demands from the global south. Those are not easy things to, to negotiate and it's going to take time. So I think part of the uh, recommendation as we look to next year is, is th there is no magic solution, right? So whatever companies are trying to articulate, A, make sure it's truthful and real and authentic. Um, you know, you're not trying to prove anything by setting unrealistic ex expectations or targets. So uh, people will ask, what have you done? And just be ready to answer that question or what are you doing or what are your aspirations? I think the, the, the larger question as we look at COP28 and the UAE's role is uh, there's a deep misunderstanding globally about this region and the progress that's, that it, it has made and that it is committed to in terms of where we're going as a country uh, with a leadership that is, that is definitely looking ahead to uh, net zero carbon emissions that is insisting on an energy transition that's responsible, but that is certain. I mean, even, uh, the president of the country has articulated a post oil future and a post oil ambition. And I think that's something that is not to be overlooked. So part of COP 28 is helping people understand the context of why the UAE and where it's going and then what each company's role and responsibility is to getting us there. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier on, Brian, that we really need to upskill in this area. So when you think about the professionals listening to this podcast, members of MEPRA, 
what are the key areas that you think we need more training in that we could help to increase literacy when it comes to ESG and carbon, for example, in? And, and what would your advice be in terms of going on that journey of upskilling? Yeah, well, first and foremost, I'm old school. So read the newspaper every day. And more than just one, more than just the national, for example, or the local Arabic publications, read, uh, you know, the, the publications from east to west, uh, understand the context of the different regions, right? And how they're seeing this whole question of ESG, uh, get smart about where companies are getting in, uh, in trouble in terms of making commitments either they can't meet or what the demands are. Uh, think about how your purpose fits into that overall ESG story in terms of what we talked about earlier, your products and services, your societal action, uh, making sure you're staying true to your brand. And then there's a lot to learn from each other. No one has gotten this 100% right. So the beauty of organizations like MEPRA and PAGE is that we all get together and we talk and share experiences and understand what has worked and what hasn't. It used to be five years ago that a sustainability report was enough to really show your ESG uh, credentials and bona fides. That's no longer the case anymore. It's much more complicated than that and much more nuanced than that, right? So you have the story, you have to back it up with data and different data will be interpreted and, and uh, uh, judged by different stakeholders. Um, but most of all, I think just being humble that we, that no one has the answer is we're all on this journey together. Uh, most people are really trying to do the right thing and solve the world's biggest problem, which is to make sure that the planet is inhabitable and sustainable and that we transition to a cleaner source of energy that is uh, going to be good for the next several generations. I think that's one of the great things about PAGE and about MEPRA in terms of really learning from the different members, getting all of the insights and then feeding that into a report like this one when it comes to, you know, giving practical advice as well on, on how to get started. So final question, and let's look at maybe some of the, the younger students or people who've just graduated who are thinking of getting into communications and PR or people just starting out in the career. And let's think of something perhaps inspirational we can share with that audience. Brian, do you think that in today's changing world, a communications professional can truly have an impact on the planet, people, and profit. Yeah. If I had to do it all over again, I, I wouldn't change that career trajectory for a number of reasons. One, it's probably the most dynamic profession because you end up learning something new every day and you, you get to apply your skills to uh, a part of society that's making a huge difference, right? We're seeing all over the world trust collapsing in different institutions in government in particular, uh, whereas business has stayed relatively stable. And I think that's because people understand that business can be more agile, uh, can be more impactful and can just, um, you know, using this set of talent and innovation, uh, make a bigger difference. So the, the reason why communications is so fun, uh, if you, uh, don't mind me using that word is that you can really have a direct impact as the conduit back to the business as to what people are, are thinking and expecting, right? So sometimes that's not always easy and it's not always pleasant, uh, to tell an executive team that, that we're not doing enough or we need to do more or the expectations are higher, but you're at the center of immediate impact, right? And I think what we all want from our professional selves 
is the sense that you can make a difference. So that's where I think the the communications function, particularly in this fast-paced media environment today, where you're getting new ways of communicating uh, more effectively so that people understand a story uh, is really exciting, much more visual, uh, different skill sets, even on my team of you know, graphic designers and multimedia and artists and storytellers and great writers in English and Arabic and, uh, you know, people who know how to use data in different ways. It's, it's a very different communications team than it was 10 or 15 years ago. And five years from now, it's going to be completely different as well. And I'm not sure that there are that many industries that are that dynamic and exciting, uh, that can make a real difference in the world. So, um, you know, join the communications function. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a great and long-lasting profession, and it's one that can have a real difference on people's lives. I think you've really touched on something so inspiring there in terms of, you know, we are actually the storytellers, and the stories that we tell are now even more important than than ever before in terms of the context that we're in in, in this changing world. So on that inspiring note, I'd like to thank you very much, Brian, for your time today. We'll wrap up this very interesting podcast on stakeholder capitalism. And we look forward to more MEPRA podcasts, training on this topic, and really encourage everybody to, to read that page report. Where can they find that report, Brian? So you can go to the page website. That's probably the easiest, which is uh, you can Google Arthur W. Page Society or, or page.org is the domain. Uh, you can download the stakeholder capitalism report and read some great examples, case studies from all over the world, where to your point that people are using storytelling to make an impact and really to have an emotional impact that affects behavior, which is, uh, which is the most important thing. So read and enjoy. And if there are questions, come back to Paige or MEPRA and our teams, and we can help you navigate. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.